You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 99 of the Apple Insider Podcast, where we discuss all things Mac, iPod, iPhone, uh, iPad related, and more. We've got some killer deals that I want to mention for our U.S. listeners right up front. Apple's 13-inch MacBook Air is available for $849. That's $150 off with free expedited shipping and no tax outside of New York. So while supplies last, Apple Insider listeners and you, dear listeners and readers, can save an extra $20 on top of instant discounts on the 13-inch MacBook Air. That's a 1.6 gigahertz machine with 8 gig of RAM and 128 gig SSD at our dear friends B&H Photo with a promo code. We're going to have this link in the show notes, and I just wanted to make sure that if you're in the market for a new machine that this one is available to you. Joining me is Neil Hughes. Neil, welcome. Hey, Victor. How's it going? Brilliant. How are you? I'm doing all right. So what exciting happened this past week? Well, a lot to talk about this week. Um, I guess the thing that would apply to most of the people that uh, that are listening to this show would be the uh, release of new software. Um, if you've got an iPhone or a Mac uh, or an Apple TV, a uh, bunch of new stuff to talk about there. Okay, so the first one that happened was the uh, the Apple Watch OS update, and one of the things that we posted about Mikey wrote this story was about Apple issuing the Watch OS three point one point one update and then pulling it from circulation after uh, after a number of consumer units were rendered unusable. Yeah, it seems like a minor number. I, I had two watches uh, that I updated and did not have any issues with it. Uh, the update is no longer available, but the one that I installed seemed fine. Uh, it was a pretty minor update, just some bug fixes and stuff for Apple Watch. But uh, yeah, if you didn't update yet, uh, Apple has saved your skin potentially and pulled the update. And uh, yeah, So you know, if you've got the watch and you haven't updated yet, that's fine. You'll get an update when they decide it's ready to release. It'll come out, yep. And it's not that big of a deal on update. You know, and, and if there you are having trouble with your Apple Watch, one of the things you can do is press perform a force restart by pressing down and holding the side button crown for ten seconds. Well, the problem is when the software bricks, you have to actually mail in your watch because there's no way to restore it. Yeah, the hard reset doesn't solve that issue, but if you're having other issues, then this is one of the reasons they don't have a public beta program for the watch too. Because if you install a beta of new software, you cannot roll it back to a previous update. You have to actually mail in your watch to Apple to get the the unit replaced. And this is because it doesn't have a, a, an easy port that you can connect to? and I, I assume. I don't know what the technical reasons for it are. Right. I mean, we, we know that when we're talking about an iPhone, for example, you have a, uh, a port and a cable that you can actually connect directly to a computer, and you can get the phone into DFU mode and, and then work with it. But with the watch, there's no good way to force that. And uh, that's actually an interesting point, just because with, for people that don't realize with the iPhone 7, to do a force reset on it, they've changed it. It used to be on older phones leading up to the 7, you would press the home button and the lock button in order to reset. But with the iPhone 7, the home button doesn't actually move. It's a vibration function. So if there were to be a software crash uh, across the system, then the home button doesn't work. Therefore, they had to change it. So it's the volume down button and the lock button on the iPhone 7 to do a hardware reset. And that's interesting because that's not dissimilar from the button presses that you do on an Android device to get it into recovery mode. Yeah, it's uh, uh, one of those things where people talk about uh, uh, how they want to get rid of uh, buttons on Apple devices and uh, an inevitable iPhone without any buttons on it. Uh, I think that you're going to still have physical power buttons on these devices. There is a reason that the Touch ID button on the MacBook Pro actually clicks. Wait, say that part again. 
the touch ID button on the MacBook Pro, it, it's a button. It actually clicks. It's not just uh, it's not just a fingerprint sensor. It's a button. Okay. Cool. You know, I wasn't aware of that actually. Mm-hmm. So, in other software update news, we got a new version of TVOS. And what were some of the improvements or changes there? Well, in uh, TVOS and iOS 10.2, um, TVOS 10.1, Apple added a new TV app that's kind of a centralized location for you to search for content across a number of sources to find it more easily. Um, it's a little clunky right now. Um, I don't know how good it is, but it's a start. Um, and it's definitely a sorely needed uh, thing. For uh, folks that don't necessarily like the TV app, especially on the new Apple TV, um, it's kind of annoying because the default uh, functionality of the what is the equivalent of the home button, it looks like a widescreen TV on the Siri remote. Once you update, it actually changes the button so that rather than taking you to the home screen, it takes you to uh, the TV app. Uh, so it's like a quick access to this uh, to this. Screen, it, it's, it's basically changing the definition of home from the the list of apps to the TV app is home. Yeah. Um, thankfully, you can go in the settings and turn that off and make it so it works like it did before. Uh, or if you want to get used to the way that it is, because that's Apple's preferred way of doing it, you can hold the menu button and that will return you to the home screen as well. Okay. So it, it strikes me that this is an interesting change because... You know, if if you have that as the the home that's a portal to all of your TV content, then it makes great sense. But if you were using Apple TV for games and other kinds of applications, then it makes a lot less sense, right? Because yeah. now you're you're a step removed from where your other games were. Yeah, one of the things is content discovery and uh, finding what you're looking for is what Apple's trying to address. So they did that in part with the launch of the new Apple TV fourth generation with Siri um, and Universal Search and those kind of things. This is a way to kind of bring it all into an app where you can discover content in addition to search for it. So because you watch Westworld, maybe you'll like Game of Thrones or something, you know, they just recommend content based on that or, you know, but it can be from other platforms. It could be stuff from iTunes. It could be stuff from Hulu. It could be whatever. So uh, as of right now, um, stuff is kind of limited because, for example, uh, one of the other features that Apple rolled out this week is a single sign-on for uh, TV providers. But only a handful of TV providers are supporting single sign-on. So the idea behind it is, rather than opening the AMC app, the you know CW app, the whatever. Right. CW for each one, you have to then go to a web page slash activate yeah, and put in a digit code to activate your cable your service cable with. Provider. Right. And like for, e- a, for each different channel, you have to do that normally. Right. What is my Time Warner password? I can't remember. Blah, blah, blah. You know, you go through all this crap. So uh, Apple is trying to solve that by adding a feature called single sign-on. The problem is that cable providers have to opt in, and cable providers are notoriously slow to these things. They would drag their feet because there's not a lot of incentive for them to, to support it. They want you to watch through their cable box. I can't so, imagine. Right. So, uh, unfortunately, as of right now, your primary cable providers in the U.S., uh, Time Warner, which is now known as Spectrum, uh, Comcast, and the like, do not support single sign-on. So, uh, for most people that update uh, the TV app and the single sign-on, probably not going to be super exciting. Uh, but the hope is, as these platforms grow and as adoption grows, uh, maybe they'll become invaluable. But as of right now, eh, not so great. Okay, I want to. I've been spent my weekend doing a deep dive on on learning what's new in all of the competing media streamer boxes that that compete with Apple TV, 
And, you know, I, I got a Fire TV box going. I got a Roku streaming stick from 2016 going. I got uh, the Chromecast. I, I really went deep into these things. And I want to ask you a little bit about how they compare. Can I do that? Sure. Okay. So one of the things about Roku is that Roku is a pretty agnostic uh, platform in terms of content. You know, where, where Amazon promotes Amazon's content first, uh, Roku is very much... The, they, they work with all of them, and they're the only box outside of the Amazon's box that displays Amazon content on the box. Mm-hmm. When you're searching for a program or an actor or a director or any, any of the different kinds of fields that you can search for on Roku, they respond with results that feel to me to be very user-centric. They, they list them in order of price from lowest to highest and from which platform you already have installed, which content channel you already have installed. So if I'm searching for something and it's free on Hulu, but charged for on Amazon, then they list the Hulu result first and say that it's free on Hulu and then free on Time Warner and then charged for on Amazon, say $2.99 on Amazon kind of thing all the way down. And then at the bottom, they'll list ones where it's also free, but I don't have installed. So if I'm searching for something, I get this long list of all the places I can get it in the order of best to worst. If I'm searching through the TV app, how does that compare? I mean, the the TV app, the search function is a little different. So the TV app is meant for discovery. So, for example, you load it up and it will show you programs that you have recently watched and you can continue watching. So if you have been watching The Walking Dead or something, um, it'll say, okay, uh, here's the latest episode. It's just an easy way for you to get back into what you're doing and then it will make recommendations based on that. Now, when you're searching for content, um, it will provide it through apps that you have installed, various services um, that you're subscribing to, and also through iTunes. So, obviously, Apple has a dog in this fight. They would like to sell you a movie on iTunes rather than you streaming it, for example, on Netflix. But if you have an app installed, then it shows up, and you can find content pretty much the same way. Okay. So, that that feels in some ways a little more like what Amazon's doing, where they list their content first because they have a dog in the fight, too. I don't know who gets listed first and how that gets prioritized um, when you're searching on the Apple TV. Honestly, the way that I watch TV is not that way. I don't like search for actors or something. I have a show that I watch and I just watch it and then that's it. I'm not like, ooh, I want to see the latest Tom Cruise flicks or something like that. You know, If something's well-reviewed, then I'll go out of my way to find that specific title. But I'm not searching like, oh, I want to check out the rest of this director's stuff because generally I, I just seek out the, the films themselves or the shows themselves. Okay. I think that's uh, pretty common. I, I would agree that most people go after show titles versus directors necessarily. Right, or a- even actors. You know, I'm right. sure there's. But if you're the type of person that is going to see, you know, a John Travolta movie because he's in a John Travolta movie, you're probably not the type of person that's searching on your Apple TV too. You, that's when you just pick up the button and pick the remote and say Siri, find me right. the name of the movie that you know you already want because John Travolta's in it. Right. Right. Cool. I uh, one of the other cool things that I was doing with this was. Um, so I have Google Home and the Chromecast set up as well. And so I was able to work with Google Home to launch Netflix. And launching by voice is very cool. Mm-hmm. Saying, tell, Telling it to go ahead and play show title from Netflix on the TV and having it just come up is excellent. Yeah, you can do that on Apple TV as well. But you have to hold down the Siri button to do it, right? Correct. Okay. So all of these things, it feels like they're all converging around the same, same kind of idea. But they're uh, they're not quite all. It hasn't fully gelled yet. 
no, it, it's coming together. Um, it's going to take some time. Um, and especially, you know, with the walls put up by cable providers where you have to log in or verify your content and, uh, you know, certain restrictions, whether it's location or whatever. Um, I was on vacation out of the country last week and I wanted to watch the finale of Westworld and, uh, I couldn't because uh, I was in Mexico and my HBO Go, HBO Now, I can't remember which one's which, but the, the online-only subscription didn't work outside of the country. So, What, what, what device were you going to watch this on, by the way? On, were you on gonna, my iPad Pro. iPad Pro, okay. So I loaded up the, the HBO app. It said, this content is not available in your country. Uh, so then I went onto the App Store and I searched for uh, a VPN app called TunnelBear. And mm-hmm. you can get unlimited data, and it's very easy. The UI is very simple. You can get unlimited uh, VPN data for a month for, I think, $4. So I just, it was a subscription. So I paid for the month, and then I immediately canceled the subscription. Um, and I VPNed into the United States, and I watched the Westworld finale on my iPad. So there you go. Pretty cool. And and the VPN is one of the good ways to solve that problem. Now, right, but those are the kind of barriers that we have still in in the content industry of these, you know, whether it's location based stuff, blackouts for sports, uh, you know, region based stuff, whatever, um, logins, credentials, all that kind of nonsense. But uh, these barriers are slowly breaking down. Slowly, yes. I mean, the so so Netflix has a lot of these barriers in place for things that they've licensed that are not their original content, but. For their own content, these barriers shouldn't exist because they want it in as many places as possible. And and Amazon announced that they're now available. The the Prime Instant Video is now available in over 200 countries, which is is basically everywhere except for China. Um, and not on your Apple TV. And not on your Apple TV. But the the video is is not subject to those kind of restrictions. Also, the region doesn't matter for their content. Right. So and these sure. these walls are coming down. Yeah. It just takes time. Old media dies hard. There's a movie in there somewhere. <laughs> Old media dies harder. So tell me about the the update for MacBook Pro, the uh, 10.12.2 for Mac OS Sierra. Pretty minor update. I mean, there's new emoji in 10.2 on iPhone and uh, 10.12.2 on the Mac. Um, the big thing with the Mac update is... Uh, people were complaining about battery life on the new MacBook Pro. Um, we talked about it a little bit last week. My testing, it's comparable to my current uh, 2015 MacBook Pro. So the new Touch Bar one, some people are saying that they're getting poor battery life, but if you're pushing it, if you're doing different things, if you're running different apps, uh, if you have the brightness, there's so many variables. Um, right. If, if you're really writing a lot of data to and from the SSD, if you're really pushing the CPU and you know generating heat, you're, you're probably going to have reduced battery life because you're using the machine extensively, right? Right. So, yeah, we touched on that last week, and, and Apple then responded this week by removing the estimated time remaining on the battery indicator uh, from, from uh, Mac OS Sierra, which was controversial to some people. I don't really know how much it cares. You can still see the percentage. Before, it was always a, a horrible estimate anyhow, because it might say that you have six hours remaining on the battery, and then an hour later, it still says you have six hours remaining or you might have six hours remaining and then you do something that is processor intensive and now your six hours just turned into two hours. So Right. It, it would fluctuate based on how you were using it at that moment. Right. It was just a snapshot in time of if you kept doing this as it is right now, then this is what we think the battery life remaining would be. 
Um, but obviously people don't use their computers like that. You jump from one task to another, you open up a bunch of tabs, you get deep into something, then you load up a YouTube video, you know, you're all over the place when you're on your computer, right? I think everybody is. So, uh, it varies so much in, in all of that. Uh, so Apple decided to remove it. That was controversial for some people. I, I just don't really care. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Well, it's, it's not that they were hiding anything by removing this. It's simply that it wasn't accurate and providing something that's inaccurate was worse than, than providing something at all. I don't know that there's an accurate way to provide it. You know, like, uh, you, you could say the same of any portable device that does multitasking. Like this isn't, you know, a camera where you can say it can take X number of pictures or something where it has a single task. If you're talking about your phone, uh, you, you do something that is processor intensive and you have, uh, auto brightness on and you're in bright sunlight, uh, and your battery is going to go to crap. If you, um, if you are in extreme cold weather, your battery life is shortened just by the conditions. There are so many variables based on what you're doing and where you are and stuff with these devices, what your wireless connectivity is like, you know, in New York, uh, I, I have my battery drain all the time because when you're down on the subway, your phone is trying very hard to get a cellular signal and that just nukes your battery life. So, um, you know, it, it's it's just one of those things where you there is no way that you could accurately predict it because the variables change so frequently and are so outside of the control of Apple. So if you want the these menus back, if you want that information back, accurate or not, what should our listeners do? Uh, there are some like third party applications and stuff that provide similar functionality that you can do or just don't update your Mac. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So one that I've used for years and years, I mean, going back to, to power PC days was one called coconut battery. And the reason that I used coconut battery is that besides telling me estimated time remaining, it, it also gave me information about how many battery cycles my battery had been through and, and uh, historically how much capacity remained in it versus when it was new. So by having gone through 300 cycles, my battery's aged. It's diminishing in terms of capacity. And, and I was able to see that through kind of animation through coconut battery as well. There's another one called uh, Bajango's iStat menus, which uh, I, I think I also used to use back then. But both of these things are still in development or still supported and would be ways for our dear listeners to be able to go ahead and see this information if they were interested. Yeah, if this is something that you're really hung up about, there are ways to get around it. It's not, I, I just don't see this as that big of a deal. Yeah. Now, as a part of the 10.2 um, update, we got some changes to HomeKit. Yes. And f I, I know you're a big into HomeKit. Uh, yeah. So I recently, and I'm planning to write a series of articles on this in the coming weeks. Uh, so listeners can kind of stay tuned and see that. I, I bought a bunch of HomeKit stuff, um, recently moved to a new place and decided to kind of go whole hog on HomeKit. And uh, there's some good and some bad. Um, I still can't get scenes to work consistently the way that I would like. But uh, the 10.2 update, one of the things that it does is it adds the ability of new categories of devices to send uh, push notifications to your iPhone or your iPad when they're activated. So, for example, um, this, this was a functionality that was around before for certain devices, but they've expanded the devices. So prior, um, I have a Schlage Sense smart lock on my door. And by default, when you connect that to HomeKit, uh, it will send a notification to your phone every time the door is locked or unlocked, um, which gets annoying very quickly. Um, so this week I updated to 10.2, and by default now the motion sensor, which is part of a 5-in-1 sensor that I have in my kitchen that also does temperature and humidity and a bunch of other Who, who made the 5-in-1 sensor? Uh, iHome makes it. 
Um, and by default, after updating 10.2, anytime there was motion in my kitchen, I got a, a push notification on my phone. Anytime uh, so, the cat goes around. <laughs> right. So uh, I had to go in, and it's simple. Uh, I put a little thing in, in uh, an article that we can link to in the show notes on how to turn that off. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's good to have, um, Apple needs to have some more flexibility in terms of rules and conditions, like only notify me of motion in my home when I'm not at home or a quick setting, you know, of create a scene that says I'm on vacation. And then when you're on vacation, it turns on sensors for all those. If my door unlocks, let me know if there's motion in the kitchen, let me know, et cetera. Um, they don't have that kind of expanded capabilities right now, but it's getting there a little by little. And 10.2 is a step in that direction, which is exciting. Uh, in addition to motion sensors, it also applies to door and window um, uh, sensors if the door is open. And it also applies to smoke detectors. So there's some new smoke detectors that just hit the market that uh, that work with HomeKit. If you're not home, smoke detector goes off. This might be something you want to get alerted about. So uh, yeah, it's all coming together slowly but surely um, and big improvements. Yeah. So Fibaro, who is a company that in the past has had a, a lot of lighting products, for example, released three home kit sensors that are, use these 10.2 features. They released a, a flood sensor, which has little gold probes that detect water across them as soon as it appears. Uh, they The flood sensor also acts as a temperature sensor. And it measures movement. There's a motion sensor for movement, ambient temperature, light intensity. And there's a door and window sensor. So you can go ahead and put door and window sensors around on all your doors and windows and and get notifications when they open or close. And and these kinds of things, they don't sound like much on their own, but as a part of, of filling out the house, you know, little by little, you get these little pieces, put them in. You end up getting a fully automated home that that lets you know what's going on, that lets you know when things are out of the ordinary. If only the scenes worked as they should. I get them to work. Some things, they work beautifully, and I'm like, this is awesome. And then some things, I just can't get them to work reliably, and it's very frustrating. Let me, let me, wait, wait, wait. Let me make sure I understand. Are you complaining about something uh, quality-related in Apple's software? <laughs> yes, I am. I, 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 Who could I can't believe my ears. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, there are some things that I have that work great. Like, for example, um, I got a uh, a Lutron uh, wall switch that controls. uh, It was a fan that was hard to reach. Uh, The switch is kind of over my kitchen table and I can't get to it. And it controls uh, in the living room uh, an overhead fan. And so it was one of those things where I was like, well, I'd like to just be able to turn this on and off with my voice or my phone because getting that switch is a big pain in the butt. Uh, So I installed the switch. Works great. Um, and then I have it connected with a uh, trigger to the uh, temperature sensor. So if the temperature gets above, I think I have it set to 76 degrees, it automatically just turns on the fan. Um, and then if it goes below 76 degrees, then the fan automatically turns off. Um, there and are, that functions for you. It works great. Um, it works perfectly. And then I also have it set that from midnight to 7 a.m., the fan is never on. Um but it would be nice to have some flexibility in there. Like, let's say that it's 74 degrees in the house, but I want to turn on the fan. Well, if I do that now, then it goes, well, you're under 76 and then it just turns the fan off. So you do lose some functionality by going automated. Um, it, it, it doesn't have the nuance that you might want to have where you say only automatically turn off the fan when it goes below 76. But if I manually turn it on, then leave it on, you know, those types of things. Right. Uh-huh. So this is the same kind of problem that I run into with uh, IFTTT or if this, then that, which right. is that it, it's not fine grained enough to give you the control you really want that, that you it's, it's, it's 
too broad. There's not enough limitations in there. And it's 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 difficult, you know, when you think about these kinds of technical limitations. Uh, you know, it'd be nice to say, like one of the things that uh, HomeKit doesn't understand is where something is turned on. So, for example. I can turn on the fan with my phone or I can go over and hit the switch. It would be nice if it knew the difference. It would be nice if it knew, oh, if he hits the switch by hand, leave it on permanently. But if he turns it on with his phone and nobody's home for two hours and turn off the fan kind of stuff, you know, like those kind of little nuances. But it becomes vastly more complex the more very you sort of want it to define your intention. And that's a lot harder. Correct. So one of the things that I cannot get to work reliably is I have another Lutron, a dimmer switch for some lights in my kitchen. Now, are these a part of the Cassetta wireless system? Correct. Okay. And so I had it set so that if I unlock my door, uh, which is a smart lock, the uh, aforementioned uh, Schlage Schlage. sense, if I unlock the door and I press off on the lights in the kitchen, it also turns off the lights uh, over the kitchen table and in my living room area. And it works, but I have the exact same thing programmed in reverse. If the door is unlocked, so meaning I'm coming home and I hit the on switch in the kitchen, I want it to turn on the lights in the living room area. doesn't work. Why? I have no idea, but I can get it to work. There, there are hue lights in the, on, on, on the kitchen table and in the living room area, and they're standard uh, lights with a Lutron dimmer in the kitchen. So the switch controls the dimmer lights, but I have a scene set that says if the door is unlocked and I press this, turn them off. Works great. If I if I have the exact same scene in reverse, doors unlocked, I turn them on, it won't turn on the lights. I got it to work like twice, and then it just stopped working. Can't get it to consistently work. So there's all kinds of really cool stuff that you can do that just aren't they're not working right now. So the the uh, the sensor that I have in my kitchen um, that that does the motion sensor and the temperature and all that, it has a feature built in um, that uh, allows it to. Uh, say, if there's been no noise and no movement for 15 minutes, then we've decided the room is empty. Um, and you can apply that not with ho- Apple's Home app, but with some others, like the uh, the Elgato Eve app uh, will tap into that data. And there's another app called Home that costs $10. It's like really powerful that does some cool stuff. It taps into that data and I can say, oh, well, if the room is considered empty because you know nothing's been heard for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever I configure it for, then do this. I can't get it to work, though, even though the data is there. Like it knows the room is empty, but the scenes, the triggers just don't work. I don't, I don't know why. Hmm. So this is this is something that's interesting to me because HomeKit is really going hard down this path of actions and triggers and scenes, and they're really the only ones doing that in in a big way. I mean, there's there's Amazon Alexa, which is is primarily just on off remote controlling, and you can group things together, but it's still remote controlling by voice initiation. And the same thing is true of Google Home, although Google Home only controls the uh, the Nest and the, the Philips Hue lights at this time. And the Works With Nest program is all about deciding what these automation links should be for you so you don't have to set up these interactions. Mm-hmm. Which works reasonably well, but isn't perfect. I mean, it would never do the kind of complex thing that you're trying to do where you come home and you want the lights to turn on. Um, that's something that they would tell you to do through IFTTT, for example. Yeah, and, and I don't like to do that location-based stuff because then your phone is constantly pulling your location and it just destroys battery life. But having it tied to a switch, I think, is pretty cool um, and, yeah. and works pretty well. Um, 
I just wish that it worked consistently because the thing is, if it just never worked, like if it was just completely broken, then I would give up. But because I've had it working before, then I just keep going at it and keep going, well, maybe this will fix it. Well, maybe that'll fix it. Cause like it one tries of the scenes, you, man, it tests yeah. you. Well, one of the, one of the scenes that I have that I think would be great if I could get it to work is I have a rule set where if it's between midnight and 7am and the room has been vacant for 30 minutes and then it senses motion, it turns on the kitchen lights for five minutes at 5% light. So very dim light. So you get up to go to the bathroom. This get is the midnight water. snack light. Right. And you would think it would work. doesn't work. It seems, it seems simple enough. The, uh, it, it is between a certain set of hours. The room has been vacant. Nobody's in it. Nothing's been heard. All of a sudden, it hears or sees somebody. The light goes on to a very dim setting so that it won't bother anybody. And then after five minutes, it turns off. You would think that would be very easy to do, but yet the scene does not work. So one of the things that I'm wondering, and it, it, it's, it's, there are a lot of moving parts to this stuff, right? There's the device itself. There's the app that works with it. There's the the home app. There's the iCloud account. There's the iCloud account at the Apple TV. And there's two-factor auth on the iCloud account so that you can do remote access. There's a lot of moving pieces going on here. And I'm wondering if if it's just somewhere in the idea that it's it's one of these links that isn't quite ticking over. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes if I create it with one app, it'll work, and then not with another, and then it breaks it and it turns it off. It, it's a weird, weird thing. I can't. I, if you do scheduling, for example, it works great. If you say turn this device on at this hour and turn it off at this hour, it works with like a charm. That's not an issue at all. But it, it, as you get more complex and dive into it, that's when things start to break down. So, how many of your devices are Bluetooth? Are they all Wi-Fi devices, or are they BLE, or what? Um, I have one Bluetooth device, which is the door lock. Okay. And that's the one that works in half the sets. I mean, I don't know. Well, I I don't know if that's the one to blame. Um, people, uh, in the reviews for the Schlage had said they had a lot of problems with it, but it seems like a lot of them been addressed with firmware updates. I have not had problems with the lock. It seems to work pretty well. It's responsive. Um, like if I leave the notifications on for locking, unlocking the door, it seems to know pretty quickly. Um, I have not had, uh, serious issues with the Schlage. And one of the nice things about it too, is it has a, uh, code entry on the outside. So for example, when I was gone and I had to have someone come over and watch my place and take care of my cat. I just made the entry code to get in the last four of his cell phone number. So I gave him his own personalized entry code. He could enter it. And then when I got home, I got a log of when the home was accessed, what code was entered. And then I could delete the credentials so that he could no longer use his code to get in or whatever, you know? So if you have a guest or something. So I saw something pretty cool the other day that somebody did. They posted on Reddit where it was a guy that really wanted a package to get delivered, but he didn't want it to get stolen. So he left a note for the UPS guy and he said, the code to get into my place is the last four digits of the tracking number on the package. And so the FedEx guy or UPS guy, whoever it was, just entered the last four digits of the code and then dropped the, the package off in his house and then closed the door. As opposed to throwing it at the door or throwing it over a fence and driving away. Right. So, you know, little things like that that make smart devices really cool where when it's connected to your phone and not just the programming and the automation of it, but just the capabilities that it opens up, the kind of stuff that you don't really think about that all of a sudden when you have it, it's like, oh, I can do this, I can do that. Yeah, and I I have that Schlage lock as well, although mine has been giving me some trouble, so I need to work on that a little bit. How far um, is it from your Apple TV? Uh, 16 feet. Oh, okay. See, I have a very small apartment, so anything Bluetooth shouldn't really have an issue for me. I mean, For people that do have an issue, you might want to put, because um, you can have an iPad act as your home device, 
um, maybe, you know, wall mounted iPad or something, uh, near, near devices. If you have a bigger home, uh, that are Bluetooth connected or avoid Bluetooth devices altogether. Yeah. My, mine's been not doing remote access from the home app. It's been having trouble with a bunch of things, but the keypad still works. So we just been using it like that, which has been reasonably good. Uh, but I've had difficulties updating its firmware as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, but it's a great lock in other respects. And and honestly, when it worked, it worked brilliantly for me. So Yeah, I've been pretty happy with it. But uh, you know, other HomeKit lock makers are out there as well. The August is an example of HomeKit lock. And uh, it looks like QuickSet's also working on one that they'll probably have to show at CES. So well, the, the good news of this is 10.2 has updates to HomeKit, and Apple historically has been holding uh, major feature ed- additions for .0 releases. Uh, this is a sign between, you know, tweaks to Apple Music in 10.2, uh, the new emoji, the improvements to HomeKit, um, uh, the TV app, um, run down the list of all the things that it does in the 10.2 update. Uh, let's see more of this coming. Um, fingers crossed that Apple stops holding stuff for iOS 11 or whatever and gives us a 10.3 and a 10.4 in the interim. We don't need major releases to get enhancements. No, I mean, this annual release thing is uh, getting a little a little excessive, and you can see even Apple uh, has done .1 releases so, that are, that are so becoming bigger. on the one hand, you're saying more features faster, and on the other hand, you're saying quality. It's kind well, of a, a push-and-pull contradiction there. It, it is. Um, the, the, the flip side is... You know, I didn't mean well, to lead you into that one, but there no, we are. But, no, you're right. You're right. And, 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 and of course, as consumers, we want everything. We want it to work. But, you know, the stuff with HomeKit just not working is kind of inexcusable. Uh, and Apple has its own app, and I can create scenes and triggers in there, and then they still don't work. And that's pretty inexcusable. All right. Well, I agree with that. Um, let's, let's change gears completely. Uh, there is a story that we can't avoid mentioning here. So... The other day, U.S. President-elect Donald Trump held a meeting with tech executives on the 25th floor of Trump Tower in New York City, and Apple CEO Tim Cook was present among with lots of others. They think there were 25 people present in total. Um, so what, what, what should we say about this? What's, what's there we can say about this, Neil? That it's funny that Twitter wasn't invited? Okay, I'll give you that. I mean, obviously, uh, Twitter has been a main source of of commentary and output and opinion from Mr. Trump. So, well, the 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 uh, <laughs> the, the the belief is that they put the cutoff at uh, companies that have a hundred million dollar or billion whatever market cap. So, uh, well, it was it, the the other thing I'd say is that it was Peter Thiel who um, who was a, a part of inviting people to this meeting, and and of course Thiel is on the Facebook board. Yes, and so you know the, the fa- Facebook board not inviting Twitter is another way of looking at that. Yeah, I mean you could look at it certain ways. I, I think you know a bunch of big names were there. They probably had the most generic conversation you ever heard. Uh, it was uh, Tim Cook uh, stayed around afterwards along with Elon Musk to have a private conversation with the president elect. Um, what was talked about remains kind of a mystery. But in their big meeting, they talked about business. Uh, trying to make more manufacturing in the U.S., uh, uh, making it easier to move money around, uh, potentially to repatriate uh, money, which is um, something that Apple has pushed for pretty hard. So 
there are some business uh, related uh, so-called business friendly uh, prerogatives that Donald Trump uh, has been pushing. Uh, we'll see how successful that is, especially with the Congress that may not want to play ball and the realities of doing business. Um, but uh, it seemed like a lot less bluster than we've seen from the president-elect in the past and, and more uh, looking to uh, mend fences and build bridges to Silicon Valley. So, uh, you know, obviously a lot to be determined in the next four years of uh, Donald Trump presidency. But uh, as it is right now, uh, they're trying to give the appearance to the administration that they are uh, open for business, so to speak. Mm. I, I have to imagine this being a rather uncomfortable meeting. I mean, it's it's... You know, when the president calls, you got to go. And so there are a lot of people that Trump insulted, disagreed with, whatever, uh, that have been showing up. I mean, Al Gore showed up. Kanye West was there. You know, um, if you're Tim Cook, if you're, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, you're any of these guys, you got to go. You don't you don't turn down an invitation to talk to the president of the United States, no matter what you think of his policies or whether you agree with them or disagree with them. Um, you know, it was an invitation and Tim Cook was right to take it. And it may have been tense or awkward or weird or whatever, but that's just, that's the cost of doing business. So. All right. Well said. Let's carry on. I'd rather talk about the Apple watch Nike plus. Yeah. So I tested this out for a few weeks. Um, I mean, there's not really too much to say about it. My review didn't really go into the, the watch, itself just because it's exactly the same as the Apple Watch Series 2, which I already reviewed and liked quite a bit. And I've been using the Apple Watch Series 2 since it came out. So I got a loaner of the Apple Watch Nike Plus and, and uh, took it through its paces. Basically, there are two key things to the Nike Plus version of the watch that you get. Um, you get a special sport band, which is perforated, has a bunch of holes in it uh, that make it lighter weight and more flexible, a little easier to put on than the, than the regular uh, sport band. And then the other change is a software-only thing where there are two Nike Plus exclusive watch faces. Um, these are just uh, fitness-focused watch faces that you can only get if you buy the Nike version of it. There, there's another you know minor thing where the Nike swoosh is printed on the back of, of uh, engraved on the back of it around the heart rate sensor. Other than that, this is the exact same watch as the Apple Watch Series Two. Same waterproofing, same GPS. It comes with a Nike Plus Run Club app pre-installed, but this is an app that you can also install on any Apple Watch that's on the market right now. So the only things that you get if you buy this, other than an engraving on the back, are a special band that you can't buy with anything else, and two special watch faces, which you can take it or leave it. Um, the best thing that I can say about the Apple Watch Nike Plus is that it's priced identically to the Apple Watch Series 2. So Apple didn't charge anything extra for the Nike branding. Uh, which is a good thing. I, I can't see that as a positive uh, that they would want to charge $50 more just to say you have the Nike version of the watch. So if you're interested in this product, it's just as good as the Apple Watch Series 2. Go for it. If you're mildly interested in it, uh, you might want to get it over the, the Series 2 just because it's the only way you're going to be able to get this band and get those watch faces. If you're not That's what I was going to ask. Is, is, is there any way, if you have a Series 2, to get these watch faces? No. No. They did the same thing with Hermes, too. Um, just special watch faces for special partnerships. It's a digital thing. 
Uh, the difference is you have to pay like $1,100 for the leather Hermes band to go with your watch. Hey, the, the Dublatour band is sweet. The <laughs> leather strap that goes around the wrist twice, yes. If you're the market for that, that's fine. But I, I think the best thing that you can say about the Nike Plus Apple Watch is that it costs the same as the regular watch. So it's not offensive to anybody. And can you put the other straps on it as well? It uses the same strap adjustment? It's the exact same watch. Okay. It work with any of the bands. It looks exactly the same. Uh, it comes in two colors instead of, you know, the three or four that the, the, the Apple Watch Series 2 come in. Um, but if you're a runner and you like the lightweight band, the band's great. The, the band is really nice. Um, yeah, I mean, th- this is one of those things where if you want it, awesome. If you don't want it, then it costs the same. Who cares? It's not really that yeah. big of a deal. One of the things that I really wanted from the Nike Plus watch that I really wanted to be to, to migrate to the others was you know how the watch normally will remind you to get up and breathe or remind right. you to get up and be active. The, the Nike plus one in the presentation that they demonstrated when they introduced it showed the idea of, of telling you to get up and exercise, you know, you, you, yeah, you forgot to go for a run last week, go for a run now. That's kind just of thing. Nike plus run club app. You can install that on your watch right now. Oh, you can. Yep. It's got a watch, uh, uh, widget on there. So, Are we running today? You can open it up. It does all the same stuff. So you get that. You just don't get the faces. Well, you can get that on any watch, though. So, right, yeah, the faces are are exclusive, but nothing else about it. Um, it's the same watch, and and really, that's the way it should be. Apple played that as perfectly as they could play it. If they charged another hundred dollars and put in a special running feature and a special exclusive running app, it oh, would they'd be get murdered. Be, yeah, people would be ticked off about it. it, it, it it's great. It, it appeals to a different market and a different segment. If you like the band. Uh, if you like Nike, go for it. If you don't like it and you already own the Series 2 watch, you're not really missing anything. And if you want 90% of the experience, let's say, just install the Nike Plus Run Club app, Club app and away you go. Exactly. And the Nike Plus Run Club app, it has a lot of bad reviews on iTunes and people in the comments are saying they hate it. I don't know. I had really good experiences with it. I run with just my watch, no phone. Really like the Nike Plus Run Club app. Um it gave me uh, audio updates every mile as I was running. Uh, worked fine with my music. The, the only issue that I found, and this isn't something that I considered before when I was testing the Power Beats 3, was I got on a treadmill and I started running, but I had my phone with me because I don't mind bringing my phone when I'm on a treadmill. I just don't want to bring it outside when I run. And so I was playing music from my phone and not from my watch. And I was every time I got to an estimated mile with the watch, which was pretty accurate for a treadmill, uh, it paused the music on my phone because the Power Beats 3 automatically switched the connection over my watch to get me the audio cue saying that I was one mile in. And then so I'd have to pick up my phone to press play again to resume the music on my phone. Right. Which is a weird thing that I didn't that I didn't even think of when I reviewed the Power Beats 3 because I wasn't like quickly switching between one another. It was like, now I'm leaving my phone at home and I'm going for a run with my watch. And this was the first time that I had an opportunity to use both at the same time and was using an app on my watch that had audio play and it would pause my phone. So it's one of those weird uh, little things that hopefully, you know, gets worked out through software. So, so wait, had you been playing the audio from the phone to the watch and then listening through the watch? You can't do that. You, your, your watch controls the, the phone, but the phone connects directly to the Bluetooth headset when it's in range. Now, when you leave your phone at home and go for a run, then the headset connects to the watch and the music is whatever's stored on the watch. But that's actually one of the weird things with the watch. There's audio from the watch and there's audio from the phone and you can't get both at the same time on a headset. Yeah. This this sounds like something that Apple either knows about or is going to discover pretty quickly. You would think. Um, 
It was a minor annoyance for me. I mean, it really wasn't that it doesn't really change my thoughts on the power beats or the watch for that matter. Um, and you could just turn off the audio alerts if it was really bothering you that much or just listen to the music directly from your watch too. the problem is with the watch. You're limited to two gigabytes of music. And when I'm at the gym and I don't really care about loading my phone around, then I can get, you know, all of my music through Apple music and iTunes match. So, yeah. So what, what are the people's biggest complaints about the Nike plus run app? People were saying that it was inaccurate, that it was um, uh, it was not working properly. They had issues with it crashing. They had issues with the only issue that I encountered was it was not giving me the split times on my miles for reasons that I don't really understand. But when I got back home, it immediately synced with my phone. I could view all the data from my run on my phone. It worked great. Okay, so that's about you running. Let's talk about Super Mario running. <laughs> that's awesome. So, <laughs> hey, have you played it? Yeah, I played through, uh, it came out this afternoon, um, we're recording on Thursday, episode comes out Friday. I uh, uh, downloaded it, and I paid the $10, and I beat the first, uh, like, five or six levels very quickly. Uh, the first three are free, um, and then once you get to the first uh, Bowser castle, uh, Koopa whatever castle, uh, then you gotta pay $10 to keep going, or you can try the level for 20 seconds if you want. Uh, but once you pay 10 bucks, you unlock all the levels. Not all at once. You still have to progress through the game, obviously. Um, but I, I kind of was wondering what the game was going to be like. Was it going to be an infinite runner like they are on the App Store with these randomly procedurally generated worlds where obstacles are just getting thrown at you like every other infinite runner is on uh, the App Store? Not at all. The, this is a true Mario game through and through. The only difference is you don't control the movement of the character. You just tap to jump so you can play with one hand. But the levels are expertly designed um it feels like a true mario game in every single sense of the word it's a true nintendo product uh the controls are great the graphics look great uh i would pay 20 dollars for this game i think it's fantastic okay um one of the things i remember reading from shigeru miyamoto was that they had originally thought that designing for mobile would make it easier to make the game. But in fact, the reverse was true, that, that this was as complex as any other game they've made, that they ended up having to have three different teams on it, and that the three different teams worked on the three different types of of modes that you can play in. Yeah, and you can definitely see that when you play it. Nintendo, and especially Mario games, are always known for ex- exceptional level design. Um, and also very tight controls and timing and all that kind of stuff. And just when you play the f- through the first couple levels, you notice that, you, you know, you can time, you know, jumping on the turtle shells and the and the Goombas and all that. Um, you can time it to get all the coins and to pick up all the extras and to get to the higher parts of the level. Um, they have areas where when you walk on something, it'll have you jump backwards instead of forwards. Um, you can do the wall jumps. There's even spots where um, you hit a flag to, uh, you know, uh, a checkpoint in the game and it'll actually pause it right there because it's a timing thing. So there will be an enemy in front of you and you need to time when you're going to get by him so that when you press again, you start running again. They have all these clever little things. It's awesome. So are you going to be playing it on the subway? Nope, because I don't have data on the subway. That that seems to me like a giant mistake on their part. Well, it's Nintendo. They they're Nintendo has always been very business savvy. Um, they have a lot of money uh, on hand, a lot of cash. Uh, when you compare to the likes of uh, you know Sega back in their heyday, or um, uh, more modern consoles like the Xbox or the PlayStation, uh, they, they traditionally get sold at a loss. And the idea is they make up uh, the money on game sales and licensing fees for titles that come out. Nintendo has never really taken that approach. They've always made a profit on their consoles when they come out. Uh, For example, the Wii U, which has stopped production, uh, has 
is still is still priced at the store at three hundred dollars, whereas you can get a PlayStation Four for two hundred fifty dollars. Uh, th- that is one of the reasons that Nintendo and Apple get compared a lot because uh, Nintendo tends to be strict with their pricing and very smart with how they do business. Um, this is an example. I think the internet connection always required for the game of Nintendo being a little paranoid, uh, this being their first venture into mobile, uh, a little paranoid about pi- piracy. Um, and I think that's why they did it. Uh, it's unfortunate. I disagree with it, but, uh, you can't argue with good business sense. So, I mean, is, is piracy on iOS a big problem? No, but this game is eventually coming to Android and it is a big problem there. So, uh, I, would guess that that is one of the reasons that they did it just to have it have parity between all the platforms. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm going to go ahead and give it a play and I encourage our listeners to, to let us know what they think about it. You know, that's one of the things that, that I want to make sure I express to everyone listening is if you have feedback, if you have questions, if you, if you have things you'd like to ask us about, please go ahead and let us know. Um, the last piece that I've got here. Is, well, not the last thing we're going to talk about, but but one of the things is that our own Daniel Aaron Dilger got a set of AirPods. And they started accepting orders this week, finally, after a few delays. Um, we we got a, our hands on uh, advanced version, but some of the uh, uh, regular orders are due to start shipping next week before Christmas. But the vast majority of people uh, aren't going to get them until after Christmas, which uh, cannot be viewed as anything but a failure on Apple's part. Uh, this is supposed to be, you know, one of their big products for the holidays, and they couldn't get it in the hands of consumers on time, and that's a shame. I don't think they're going to be hurting for it though, because pe- people who want them are going to continue to want them. I you agree. Know, th- this this is the idea of being able to walk around and have Siri in your ear, which is, you know, we we talk about voice assistants, right? We talked about Google Home, we talked about the Amazon product, which if I say your name right now, it's going to wake up the speaker over there. Um, We've, we've talked about these things and, and the idea of placing it directly in your ear as opposed to making it a speaker that's fixed inside your home somewhere is, is a way of making it more personal. Yeah, it's a it's a wearable device. Um, it's just a absolute failure on the part of Apple and, and especially for CEO Tim Cook, who is a, a operations genius, as he's been called. Uh, this is a company that announces an iPhone and 10 days later puts 12 million of them out on the market. Um, This is a company that is known for turning things around and is known for not pre-announcing products. Uh, You know, there are a few exceptions over the years. The the Mac Pro cylinder uh, coming out the very last day of the year um, a few years ago. Uh, The white iPhone 4 uh, running into all kinds of production issues. But other than that, when Apple announces a product and says it's coming out, it comes out. And the delays for the AirPods no matter how you view it, I mean, it, it may not, it's not that big of a deal in the long run, I don't think, but it's still an embarrassment for the company. Yeah, I don't think they're going to lose a ton of sales because they weren't out before Christmas. No, it's just, normally it's that not, might be the case. It's not Apple's MO. It's not their style. Um, they don't like to do these kind of pie in the sky. Oh, this is coming out one day. You know, you see things like Microsoft HoloLens and they announce it a year before they start giving it to developers and you still can't get your hands on it as a consumer. And it's like, oh, geez. And that's just a completely different way of doing business than Apple. Apple announces a product and then it comes out and they announced the product in September and they said AirPods are coming out in October. They didn't. Uh, And they're not shipping until days before Christmas. And that's a that's a failure on Apple's part. I agree. But I don't think it'll hurt them. No, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but it's still a failure. 
one of the things that I'm hopeful to see is is how well they work with Macs because Macs for years have had terrible handling of Bluetooth audio. It's just been a, a, a failing of, of, of OS ten. Yeah, I don't um, use wireless headphones a lot with my Mac um, just because I'm already sitting at a desk or whatever, so I'd rather just plug in. But uh, in the testing I did with the PowerBeats 3, which have the same W1 chip, um, it, I think you'll be pretty happy with it. Uh, I would have to go under the Bluetooth menu and select the PowerBeats, and then it would automatically connect to them after that. I didn't have to put in a pairing mode or anything like that. But yeah, it was fine. I was happy with it. Cool. Um, you know, I'm looking at these things, and, and Daniel took a picture of the AirPods charging pack, and he took a picture of it next to the Apple TV remote. And one of the things that it strikes me, and I think he said it too, was how great it would be if the Apple Watch similarly had a charging puck that used the lightning cable. Well, they, they do have one. It's the uh, the charging stand that Apple sells. It plugs in with a lightning cable. It just costs mm. 80 bucks. It just doesn't come with your Apple Watch. Yeah, it would be ideal if Apple Watch came with it, though. Yeah. No, by, by default, it comes with a magnetic charging cable um, with USB mm-hmm. on the other end. But there is one with a lightning plug on it that uh, ser- serves as like a sideways dock that you rest the watch on and it connects to and charges. For an additional 80 bucks. For an additional $80. Yeah. So... I'm going to pick your brain here one more time. Tell me about PhotoKite. So this is something that I saw um, uh, last year and thought it was pretty cool. So I, I've never actually backed a crowdfunding campaign before, but I actually had my hands on this product and got to test it out. And I thought it was a neat concept, so I figured I'd back it uh, at a cheaper price. Um, I don't know that I'm going to review it on Apple Insider, um, but I want to talk about it here on the podcast just because, you know, if people are into technology and cool little gadgets, you might find this to be interesting. Uh, basically, the concept is if you don't know how to fly a drone or you're intimidated by it or or don't really want to mess around with that kind of stuff um, or potentially to get around the laws about flying drones, you know, when it comes to uh, airline uh, FAA. You can't really advise anyone to get around regulations. That would be ridiculous. well, this but this does get around the regulations by tethering the drone to uh, a string. So basically, I, I got uh, my unit this week, um, and it's a little string that connects from uh, a essentially like a, a retractable dog leash is what I would describe it as, um, but a smart one that has like motion sensors in it and stuff. And then that connects to the drone, and then the drone has uh, – you put your GoPro camera on it, and then you can use it to record. Um it's definitely not a consumer product, is what I would wait, say. Wait, wait, what is the what is the point of this thing? Before you tell us whether it's it's for us or not, what what why, why does this thing exist? Like I said, if you want to get aerial footage of something, um, okay, and you are not necessarily uh, trusting of auto fly capabilities, rightfully so, or you don't want to pilot it yourself, or you're worried about regulations, or for example, you want to fly it indoors. Uh, this is something that you just let it up in the air and then kind of pull it along behind you and give it some slack to let it up. Um, and you can even rotate it when it's in the air by using the, it has Bluetooth controls that are built into the leash. Um, and it's just an easy way to get aerial footage. Uh, you can have it point towards you where you'll get kind of the rope and the string, or you can have it point away from you, or you can have it point straight down. Um, and you can get really cool aerial footage without any uh, muss or fuss. And it also folds up into a really nice, compact, uh, easily stowable, not something you'd want to carry in your pocket. I mean, it, it, it came with like a little carrying bag that I, that I bought a little, little backpack kind of thing. Yeah. But you could easily put it in like, uh, so a couple of years ago I took a phantom drone, um, uh, on a ski trip and it literally took up my entire carry on bag for the flight. Uh, this thing you could put in a backpack and 
very easily. You know, you got a day in the mountains, you take it up there with you. Uh, you want to get a quick photo or a quick video or whatever, take it out, unfold it, bam, throw it up in the air, let the leash go, get what you want, pull it back in, put it back in your backpack, you're good to go. Uh, since it was, since I first saw it, um, it, there have been some products that come out that have focused on being more portable, including, uh, DJI has the Mavic pro. Uh, but again, that is one of those things that is built on autopiloting on you piloting it, um, instead of having something as simple as just kind of letting it up in the air and then pulling it back in. So th- this sounds like it's aerial photography for everyone. That's the idea. So, so why is it not consumer friendly? Uh, I mean, it's a very, this is a small company. Um, I think they're based out of the Netherlands that they, uh, uh, specialize in, uh, uh, advanced robotics and drones. One of the early concepts they had were drones that would play like ping pong with each other and keep the ball in the air. So they do really cool stuff there, um, at at the company. Uh, and their, their original product was meant for news crews. So for example, you could have a van, um, with a big power supply or an engine that would pl- provide an unlimited power supply. You show up to a protest or a riot or some large crowd. Um, you let this camera up in the air with professional grade equipment and the string is not just a string, but also live video feed. And the drone can stay up there essentially infinitely because it's tethered to the ground. So they took that same concept and decided to give it a more consumer-friendly focus. And it certainly is more consumer-friendly than requiring a van or something like that. But, uh, I mean, it's still... um, Everything about it is uh, not quite uh, the polished level that you would want for a product that you would go and buy at the store. For example... Um, you can't even update the firmware with a Mac. Uh, you have to update the firmware with a Windows PC. Um, th- there's just, you know, a bunch of little things. The controls, um, are not, it takes some getting used to, like you, you press a button and you tilt the leash left and right to, to rotate the direction of where the drone is facing and stuff like that. But, um, it's just not quite the polished experience for everybody. But I think if you've ever been like a hobbyist, if you've ever been into like RC cars or, you know, uh, you're an early adopter of technology that's a little bit wonky and a little bit out there, I think you'll have a lot of fun with this product because it's unique and there's there's really nothing else like it out there. Cool. So what's your recommendation? I, I think they're selling this thing for like 400 bucks now. It's a bit steep. Um, I think that for most people, the product that they would like better is uh, another one that we did a hands-on with, which is uh, called the uh, Hover, what is it called? The Hover Camera Passport. Uh, And that is a collapsible drone um, that has things that cover up the uh, blades on it. It folds up into like a square type shape. Um, and you can control it with your phone and kind of put it up in the air and get aerial footage that way. I think that's really great for indoor use, um, and it's even more portable than the Photokite. Uh, the problem is it's very lightweight and not very powerful. You wouldn't want to use it outdoors. I think it would just get tossed around in the wind. But I think that is a more polished uh, presentation and a little easier for folks to use. But again, that one costs 500 bucks. So the, the problem with these things is the pricing, really. Um, you know, you could get a Mavic Pro, and that thing's awesome, but you're going to spend 1000 bucks on it. Uh, these are not cheap toys, you know? Yeah. So if you're a hobbyist and you're into aerial photography, then either the, the hover camera or this photokite yeah, the are probably ways to go without a whole lot of investment, right? You don't have to blow a thousand on them. Well, if you but, already have a GoPro, then yes. If you don't have a GoPro, then you shouldn't even really consider the, the photokite. And, and here's part of the problem, too, and this is why I say hobbyist. So it was designed, you know, a year and a half ago. I saw it a year ago. It connects to the GoPro Hero port, which with the new GoPro Hero 5 no longer exists. So it only works with the GoPro Hero 4 or 3. Uh, Oops. 
So, you know, this is what happens when you make a product that's dependent on another product. Uh, if, you know, if Apple decides to ditch lightning next year, think about all the accessory makers that are going to be screwed. This is kind of the position that, that Photokite finds themselves in with this newly launched product. So they're going to either have to sell an adapter or come up with something different or integrate their own camera or whatever. So, I, I mean, I don't mind. I already had a GoPro. Uh, I'm pretty happy with it. I've, I've flown the thing indoors and it bumped into the wall and it survived and didn't crash or do anything crazy. So in terms of what it promises and, and how well it delivers, I'm pretty happy with it. But, uh, you know, most people are not going to be happy if they spend $400 on a drone and that doesn't work with their latest GoPro. Yeah. Do, do you feel like they just they came to market too late or they came to market too early? What's what's your feeling here? I mean, it, it, again, it's it's not an established company. Um, you know, think about the early days of DJI. They used to depend on GoPros for their drones as well. And then they finally just started integrating the cameras themselves because it made sense. Uh, and then that opened up a whole world of possibilities for them to do automated flight and that sort of stuff. Um, this is a very small company um, that, you know, did a successful Indiegogo campaign, uh, and it took them longer than they expected to get to market. They were thinking they were going to hit the market early this year. They didn't end up shipping until, you know, November, December for backers. So, yeah. I mean, that's just the realities of you look at Pebble going out of business, right? And Pebble, by all accounts, is the most successful Kickstarter crowdfunding, whatever you want to call it, campaign ever. They raised for they're certainly watch. right up there if they're not number one. Yeah, you know, $12, 15000000 million, whatever they raised for their watch. And they sold hundreds of thousands of watches. They had them at Best Buy. I mean, this was on the shelf right next to, you know, Samsung Gear, Apple Watch, you name it. It was there right alongside them with the big boys. And they couldn't cut it. And Fitbit came in and bought them for a fraction of what they were offered to be bought for a year ago. And, well, and this wasn't the first time, like you say, they were offered earlier, too, because Intel was going to offer a lot of money for them at one point. Yeah, and they got a fraction of that from Fitbit. And Fitbit is going to shut it down. They're not going to sell the watches. They're they're going to – that's going to be it. Um, and, I mean, it's a failure. I, any way that you try to slice it, the company didn't make it. And it's a shame because I like I like Pebble and I, I like what they were doing and it was a scrappy underdog and I respect the heck out of that. I think that's great. But um, it didn't work out. And that's a tough, 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 tough business to try to break into with consumer electronics with these big name companies out there. You know, Photokite uh, is never going to compete with DJI. They're never really even going to compete with Parrot. That's just the reality. I but I don't think they're trying to either. I don't think they are. And, and that's okay. It, it doesn't mean that they have to. But as a consumer, when you're backing a, a crowdfunding campaign, you have to know what you're getting into. You have to know that what you're going to get is a rough around the edges product that is not going to work as seamlessly out of the box or be as polished as you expect from these big multi-billion dollar companies. When you're backing some no-name company, you know, even the Pebble, everything felt kind of cheap about it. The screen was, you know, whatever. Certainly for the first version, yeah. yeah exactly. And and they tried to improve it and they tried to make it better and they did another Kickstarter campaign and they couldn't even ship their latest product, you know, the new Steel and and Time watches that, that got canceled and backers didn't even get them. Pebble came in, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, Fitbit came in and they're just unceremoniously shutting down the company and laying off most of the people. And people and are ticked off. funding people's money. So it's not like you're getting out without nothing. Right. But people have invested in the Pebble ecosystem. There were apps that were developed by developers. There are people that have bought all these watches. There are there are folks that, that put a lot behind this company, not just into that financially to back them or whatever, but emotional investment, you know, the same way that people are into Apple or whatever, they were into Pebble. And the failure of Pebble is kind of a reality check for those folks that this is a really, really, really tough space to get into in any sort of portable electronics. Uh, for a no-name company to come in and make a splash and do that, 
you know, the GoPros only come around every so often. Um, and even they, as seen, they're in trouble too. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough to stay on top, especially you know Apple keeps making better cameras and their phones, and it's like, why do I really need a GoPro? Do I really need to upgrade? Can I just use my waterproof phone for this and put it in a case? Uh, the need for it becomes less and less, and the technology is getting more and more converged. Definitely. So, on that note, as things all come together, our next episode is episode one hundred. Mm-hmm. What do you want to tell our listeners? Well, um, you know, I, I hate to be do too much navel gazing on on the podcast, but uh, I think that um, you know, hundred episodes is a pretty big accomplishment. So, congratulations to you, Victor, uh, having uh, brought us this far, and and obviously the show is doing pretty well for us. So, I uh, want to give listeners kind of an opportunity to weigh in, and we were thinking that maybe next week's episode, uh, you know, we could have your questions or comments, and we could devote an episode just to. Uh, hearing, hearing what everybody uh, has to say and what they think, uh, speak what's on your mind, whether it's about Apple technology, whether it's about Apple Insider or the podcast or, or whatever you want to weigh in. We, we would hope that you'd reach out to us on Twitter um, and email us and uh, let us know what you think. All right. Neil Hughes, everybody. Where can people find you on the internet, Neil? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at this is Neil N-E-I-L. And you can read my stuff at Apple Insider. And if you want to uh, contact us uh, uh, to talk about something for next week's episode or what have you. Uh, you can reach us at news at appleinsider.com and our whole news team will get to see it. Brilliant. I'm your host, Victor. This has been episode 99 of the Apple Insider podcast, and we'll talk to you next week. 